Welcome to Empowered Owners, the podcast that takes you inside Empowered Ventures. I'm your host, Chris Fredericks. In each episode, I'll have a discussion with one of our employees to discover and highlight their distinct personalities, perspectives, and skills, while also keeping you in the loop with exclusive news, updates on company performance, and a glimpse into the future plans of Empowered Ventures. This is an opportunity for me to learn more about our amazing employee owners and an opportunity for you to hear regularly from me and others from within Empowered Ventures. On this episode of Empowered Owners, I'm talking with Jim Prestopino, Senior Sales Consultant at TVF, a fabric supplier and the founding portfolio company of Empowered Ventures. I'll also be joined by EV's Chief of Staff, Emily Bope, at the end of the episode to debrief my discussion with Jim and talk about a few other EV-related topics. Jim Prestopino graduated from the University of South Carolina with a degree in management and has more than four decades of experience in the textile industry. Jim worked in sales, customer service, and management in multiple textile finishing companies before joining TVF in 2002. Jim has been TVF's leading sales consultant by dollar volume many years running, Due to his vast textile construction expertise, combined with relentless problem-solving and an intense desire to help his customers succeed. Personally, Jim enjoys playing golf and is an avid Gamecocks fan, and he has become a passionate fan of Indiana pro sports, including the Pacers and Colts. In this conversation, we cover some really interesting and surprising topics, including what it takes to be a great salesperson, Jim's love of teaching and mentoring, what employee ownership means to Jim, and advice Jim has for aspiring salespeople. Without further ado, let's get to the conversation. I thought a fun place to start might be your first time in a textile plant or factory. Can you remember like the very first time you set foot in a a textile plant? Right out of college. I joined Milliken and Company, and they sent me to Tacoa, Georgia. And I was a shift supervisor there for five years, but uh, texturizing nylon and polyester, making it go from a very much a very stringy thing and heat it, twist it, and makes it feel like a natural fiber like cotton. So that was uh, 82 was when that happened. Got it. And what was the textile industry like back then? And, and what led to you ending up in the textile industry to begin with? Um, listen, I'm from South Carolina, Spartanburg, home of Milliken and Company, one of the largest textile firms out there in the world. And uh, my dad worked for him. All three of my brothers worked for him at one point, you know, just part time here and there, both in the U.S. and overseas. And uh, it was just a natural progression. They were the largest employer. They hired a, a ton of people out of college. They put them into swinging shifts. The cream stays and rises. And the other people go on to lead, you know, other companies. But that's it. I mean, they were the, by far the biggest employer where I was from. So that that got me in there. Yeah. And how was that first job for you? Did you enjoy it? Not not enjoy it? What did you like about it? What didn't you like? It taught me a lot of stuff. Uh, taught me a lot of things. Swing and shift. So I'd work first, second, and third all in a period of three weeks. Uh, those were 10-hour shifts. We had one day on Wednesdays, eight hours. And it just taught me how to deal with people. Um that's it. I learned one of my most valuable lessons from one of my employees there. And, uh, you know, you just learn how to deal with people. I mean, in the 
in the actually in the textile world, but we hung out, you know, part of the social uh, softball team, things like that. So it teaches you, you have to work very closely, especially when the third shift, three o'clock in the morning, something goes wrong. You got to figure things out, but also how to deal with people. Hmm, interesting. So you said you learned a really valuable lesson from, from one of your employees. What, yeah. what was that? Uh, to this day, I had two guys on my shift that were really good. And, you know, on, when you're on third shift, big guys come in in the morning, you want to see everything running close to 100% efficiency. And this one guy who was my best employee, if the machine went down, he could get it running quicker than anybody else. And I would take him off of his machine and go put him on there and somebody else would do his work. And he came to me one time and said, listen, I have no problem helping out, but how do you ever expect the other people to learn how to do it? And from then on, I made everybody, there was no help. Nobody was coming to help them. Nobody was there to, if they couldn't do it. Um, everybody stayed on their own machine. And ever since that happened, my numbers went up as far as efficiency. Our shift was number one. Anything that you could measure as far as a shift, we were there. And it was all because of him. That's the most valuable thing I've ever learned in business. Wow. That's awesome. That's such a good lesson. So you were there in that job for about five years, you said? Five years. What came next? I wanted to get out of swinging shifts. I was tired of it. And, um, you know, I let it be known. And one Friday morning, when your shift ends, we were sitting underneath a tree by the side of the road drinking a beer. And they called me up and said, hey, you've been promoted. And um, the good thing is you've been promoted but you've got to meet your boss in the Atlanta airport Monday morning. You're moving to Connecticut. And I told them, we had a big uh, one of the plant managers there. I said, I'll do whatever you want. I just want to get out. He got me out. And then I went into carpet sales in Connecticut. Oh, wow. Carpet sales. That's interesting. Yeah. It's good. They have a machine that can do patterns and things like that. And truthfully, you know, they have their solid colors, which every other mill can do probably much better than they can the way they dyed it. But Everywhere else in the world, you got pattern carpet or area rugs. And when I put something in my house now, it's, it's a pattern, you know, a solid black, white, whatever, indeed charcoal, whatever. We did a big business in area rugs and we had pattern carpet. And I enjoyed it for five years. I called on Massachusetts, uh, Western Mass, Connecticut, um, Vermont, and Eastern New York, except for New York City and all the way over to Buffalo. Did that for five years, swinging shifts. My largest customer was right there in Southern Connecticut in Trumbull. And uh, he introduced me to my wife. That was his niece. So, you know, not just having good sales with him. I knew him personally and professionally for all those years. And after a few years, he said, why don't you meet my niece? She works on Saturdays. And I would help out my dealers on Saturday if they needed some help. And he said, just come on down. Don't tell her that I asked you to. And the rest is history. So That's amazing. It gave me a nice living with the job, but also helped me find my wife. Gosh, that's so cool. So was that your first sales job, actually? Because you, you weren't in sales before, I don't it believe. Was my, or... It was my first sales job. Interesting. What was that like at first? Was it a hard transition to shift into sales or was that relatively easy for you? No, I thought it was relatively easy. When the, when the recruiters come to the universities, I said, yeah, I don't want to do manufacturing. I saw what it did to my dad. I mean, that guy could fall asleep if World War III is going around him. At the end of the day, he could fall asleep in nothing. And I just said, I want sales. 
never considered myself a salesperson. I thought I did a great job in manufacturing. I learned how to do it. But um, it, it's become natural, I think. And I don't think you can get a better testimony when your largest customer introduces you to your niece, <laughs> to his say. niece, and says, you know, we like you that much. Why don't you do it? So it, it was an easy transition for me. I'm not a, a born salesman at all. Hmm. I'm pretty much just me. And, you know, you just try to be truthful with them. And that's all any of these people ask. So I enjoyed it. I did a lot of traveling. And I'm, I'm glad I'm not doing that as much anymore. I think I should do more traveling here, but um, I enjoyed it. When you say a natural born salesman, I think everybody m might have ideas in mind about what like a, a salesperson's personality should be. So what do you think about that, that idea that there's like a personality type that's like for sales and then everyone else is, you know, not for sales? Like, how do you think about what it takes to succeed in sales, depending on your personality. Well, most people think you're a slick salesman. You can sell anything. So my sales method here is to be the most smartest guy in the room, not the slickest. It, you know, you can make a lot of promises, but if you can't back it up. And uh, so I just try to be honest. That's it. But, you know, there's some salespeople in here that, you know, are great. You know, I'm not the best. I work hard at it. But the biggest thing is you got to tell the truth. If you don't tell the truth, uh, it comes up to bite you sooner or later. And I just try to be me. I'm generally the quietest in the room, except when I'm selling. I can talk in front of a, a president or whatever, but uh, I'm not the most outgoing guy. But let's say I'm consistent, I think. Hmm. When you say smartest guy in the room, I think I know where you're headed with that. But what does that get you? to go into a situation with the president of a company or a bunch of buyers? And what are you wanting to feel when you go in there? What kind of level of preparedness about what? What's your real goal or intention when you're going into a meeting like that? First of all, you got to make sure you know why you're going there. Just don't try to show up to show up. But you have an idea of what they're looking for. Um, most recently, I went down to Myrtle Beach to play golf. And I stopped on my way down and made a, a customer visit. And I saw the owner, his fourth generation son, who's going to take over the business sooner or later, and the purchasing person. And he just started asking me questions. He said, I'm not slick. I'm not going to say it's going to do this or that, but I could answer every technical question he asked for. And I just try to be at least the most knowledgeable about what I can provide. But, you know, I just try to make sure I want to be the smartest guy that if he's going to do business, do business with me and TBF. That's it. Mm. Yeah. That makes me think about, um, you started at TVF in 2002. Is that right? Yeah. I just hit 21 years, but 20 years. I just hit 20. Yeah. That's awesome. How did you end up at TVF? I was in Connecticut after carpet. Um, you know, I could see that unless you're the top 3% in Millican, you know, the raises don't come as quick. Uh, so I, you know, I wasn't, I had a, one of the few million dollar territories, but they were looking for certain things. So I started looking around. I found a die house in Connecticut and I joined them and top value was our second or third largest customer, depending upon what day of the week it was. So I've known Bob and Robert for every 10 years. I mean, for those first 10 years, they were my largest customer top value. And after about five or six, Bob came and said, Hey, listen, if you ever decide to make a change, why don't you think about us? And it got to the point where Amber Bell was not doing financially well when I couldn't get a TVF lot coded because we didn't pay the bill 
and on time. Bob happened to call me at the right time, said, hey, have you ever thought about joining us again? Bing, bang, boom. I had a couple of visits and I joined TVF, but that's it. I called on Bob and Robert for those 10 years. They needed somebody to quote. I'm the guy that took them out at the trade shows. So it was been a great fit. When I moved in here, I, I knew all the salespeople. So it was good. And I knew Dick and Dick, uh, both owners at the time, but Dick Hansel, uh, he was the one there. And I'm very grateful that he said, come on, come join us. Let me take my wife out here, fly out out here. And it's been fantastic. Yeah. The rest is history, as they say, right? It is. Yeah. Um, so you came to TVF, you were a seasoned salesperson. I understand from Bob Burns, who you're referring to, he was a vice president of TVF around yeah. then. Um, he considered you just an outstanding salesperson, you know, back then before you joined and um, just did a phenomenal job on the relationship and taking care of TVF. So I'm sure that was a lot of what he saw and why he reached out to you in that way. So you end up joining TVF, going into sales. I don't think it took you too long to become quite successful at TVF as well. Um, your personal sales volume, which was always what a salesperson would be interested in, you know, growing, um, it really took a big leap not too long ago. And from what I gather, it's really the success you've had landing a particular kind of customer and a very large program. And that was something yep. you worked really, really hard on and landed and it's just become an incredible success story that's continued to this day. I was wondering if you might be willing to share a little bit about the story of how that came about, but almost more importantly, like how it was that you figured out how to land a customer like that. Here, you know, every salesman's got a few customers and I happened to see one that Bob asked me uh, that another salesman had at the time. He didn't like dealing with the big guys. So we switched a few accounts because I, I saw the potential in this customer. And they weren't as big as they are now. But, the, you know, I started talking to him. The owner who was trying to get into the medical business had a uh, engineer. And every time you talked to him, you almost had to have a brand new notebook. He could just talk, talk and talk. And the owner came to me and said, listen, you, you develop the products with this engineer. You keep me in the form of the pricing and I'll give you all the business. And, but when the owner, you know, he trusted me enough to know that I was not going to go around his back, do anything. I worked with this engineer for a long time. We started with one product, got two more, got a several others. And then I've got other divisions, you know, calling me now. They can you help me develop this fabric? But it was all the owner just saying, I don't have the time to deal with it because he was trying to grow his business. He let me develop the textile part. I've kept him informed and the rest is history. I mean, mm -hmm. when you have that trust from an owner that did it for me right there, he trusted me enough to just put his business in my hands, at least for that company. How did you earn that trust so quickly with that owner? Because I can talk the talk. I can mm -hmm. talk technical terms. Hmm. with you know, tell, he couldn't tell talk. me more about that yeah yeah it's just my it's my background when you've been in textiles um you know in the plant i was texturizing polyester so i know what nylon and poly feels like in an untextured state you texturize it and it makes it feel like cotton or natural fiber then i go to the dye house and i know how to dye it and i know you know shrinkage and all those little things what do i need to do twist this that whatever 
And I think I earned his respect. I took one program and needed to get it started. I took, you know, a less than a normal percentage commission because I could see the end use. And, you know, I just, you just work with the owner, try to keep him informed. But I earned it through what I could talk to him about. And I could more importantly, talk to the engineer. And that's how it all started. I knew enough stuff to get this guy, the engineers at the, at the final customer. I knew enough where he could call me on anything and we could, we could talk about it without me having to go back and forth. Got it. So were they facing technical challenges? Is that the situation? That's part of it. Part was this guy just wanted to talk to this owner about a ton of stuff. He didn't have the time. I did. And, um, and yes, it was technical. And the, the very first thing that we developed, he gave me all his wishes. I gave it to him exactly how he wanted it. It did it just fine. But there was another engineer who got a, a sample from another customer and mine was a plain weave. Mine would do what he wanted to because it was woven the right way. Well, this other company came in with a little ripstop weave. They said, well, we like the technical look of that but it had to be processed a little bit more. I said, piece of cake, we'll do it. And, that, and that's where the rest is history. Got it. Yeah, because what I was wondering, and I think from what I know about you, problem solving and figuring out you know, what the customer really needs, and that could be a, a bunch of different things. It could be a technical requirement or a personal you know, preference of some sort, or in this case, even you know, an owner prefers that you work with their person so that they don't have to spend the time to do that. You're willing to invest that time. So it sounds to me like you take a very wide perspective to solving the customer's challenges and needs. And you kind of come in with a really open mind to figure out like how you can really add value, not just by selling fabric, but with a much broader perspective than that. Is that kind of how you think about it? It is. You know, when I've talked to new guys coming in today, we're not salesmen. If you really want to be good, you're, you're a problem solver and you've got to meet the customer's needs and you meet it. You find out, did it really work the way you thought it was going to work? And that's when he told me about, he liked the weave of the other one. It looks a little bit more technical, but yeah, we're, we're problem solvers to be top of the line. And at least it's for me, that's how I sell. I try to be the most knowledgeable is solving problems. That's it. And that's what we all do every day. You get a call. These are my requirements. I can do this yardage. I can do this color. It's got to meet this fastness, whatever. These technical specs I need. That's what we do. So we're not just salesmen. We're, we're problem solvers. If you want to be successful, you solve problems. That makes so much sense. You seem to have a real strong interest in teaching and you know a passion even for kind of passing on the the knowledge and the expertise that you've developed. I was curious when you go back to kind of your early career again, did you have any mentors or has anyone stand out as someone who, you know, treated you in that way as well? Or where did that come, that come from this kind of mentoring approach that you take? Um, in sales, no, because everybody mm -hmm. had a, a big territory and I'm out in Connecticut all by myself. My boss was good, but you know, Here's here's your territory. Start selling, and I didn't have that in the mill though. That one customer or my one employee told me about you know how do you expect them to learn, hmm. and that was it. That kind of just set the tone right there. 
but didn't have a real big mentor. I knew the technical end of what we were selling. I didn't know how to sell it to our final customer at the time. And Bob has taught me a lot of that, but I knew the technical stuff. I just didn't know. All right. You know, he's going to buy, he needs 59 inch wide rolls. He's going to buy five at a time. You know, Bob is the one that, that took me on that one. What stands out about Bob and how he helped you develop further in that sense? Well, back then we had a, a, a training program where you stayed in the senior salesman's office for a year. Now I'm the one guy that had the technical experience because I'm the guy that called on Bob, but I sat in this office where I'm at right now. We have a desk over there. I did it for a full year. So I could ask him, I could just turn around. What do I do? It never seemed to be as bad when Bob talked about it. It was very calm, cool, and collected. I'm pretty intense on this stuff. Bob's pretty cool. And he would just say, all right, it's not that bad. Let's do this, this, and this. Bing, bang, boom. Problem solved. And sometimes it cost us a little bit of money, but we got it taken care of. Um, but for a full year, I stayed in Bob's office. By being able to turn around and just ask him right then and there, that was a big help. Now, I will tell you, as soon as I left his office, that's when my sales really went up. <laughs> I, do, I do think that you will uh, kind of hold back on your talking some. But once I left his office, then things really started to click a lot better. Yep. That's awesome. I think you've taken that kind of your interest in teaching and mentoring um, to a new level with TVF in recent years too. Like um, it seems like you really look for every opportunity to kind of pass on knowledge and, and help this next generation um, yep. develop a similar expertise to to what you have. Um, how's that going? Do you think, how are we doing both TVF and the industry as a whole in terms of like passing on that industry knowledge that's so important? We all had the textile experience. Me being in the office with everybody from purchasing to whatever, I can answer those questions and especially dealing with the mill. One question, you know, about how do you handle a return? Uh, person was, they'd never done it before. And they were going to write a, a thesis. No, just give them the facts, man. That's it. Just the facts. These bill numbers, this is the problem. This is the yardage. You handle it. Little things like that. But, you know, if we get quoted by one of our suppliers and it's not quite perfect, I, I can understand why. Ask them, what are you doing? But, you know, but just helping everybody here, you know. Uh, one one uh, thing was uh, we had a salesman who ordered from the old guy that worked at Amberbell when I was there. And she said, I can't have a water-based coating. For her end use, it was water-based coating. Come to find out my old boss quoted her an aqueous-based coating. Pretty, pretty slick move. Aqueous is water-based. And he got one over on her. So ever since then, I, they can come to me or I can, if I see things like that, yeah, this is what, this is what you asked for. This is how you write it. Um, these are the parameters that you have to have only because I called on top value for 10 years. So I knew the questions that I needed to ask, but I could also tell them how to go to a mill and write it this way. These are the information. Um, I know one thing when Lori uh, came here and she was sourcing fabrics from us, I wrote down a, a thing. I, I need for you to quote this. Well, she wrote it perfectly correct. I don't write perfectly correct. I give them textiles. This is what they need to know in the mill. 
you know, you don't have to write it where your grammar's perfect. No, this is what he needs to know. It's short, basic points, tears this, whatever. Um, and I just try to help people with that. That's all. That makes me think about, you know, I think people even listening now might get a sense. I think, you know, you have a, a good reputation for being a direct communicator. You're honest, you're direct. For some people, that directness could come across as a little strong at times because you're so passionate about, you know, what you're doing and you want to make sure the customer is ultimately very happy with what's going yeah. on. And at the same time, I know you as someone who likes to have fun at work. What do you think about relationships at work? It seems like you are willing to hold yourself and others accountable to high standards. And yet it seems also important to you that you have a good time at work and, and really get along with people. You know, um, when COVID hit, everybody had to go home except for the three folks, somebody picking up the mail, somebody paying the bills and, and somebody putting the money in the bank. Um, we've got a nice group here now. And it's always been this way, you know, outside of COVID. If I can help, why not? I think that's part of the reason you hired me. Uh, when Bob said he got the information and why shouldn't I help? I'm not just looking out for me. If I help everybody in the company do a little better. And, and most of these folks know it. They just might not write it in the exact same way I would write it or ask the question. But that's what we're here for. Um, we should be helping everybody. But, yeah, I'm pretty intense at work. And I tell people, it's, it's nothing personal. It's just the way I'm built. And it's nothing more than trying to do a good job for the customer. If we do a good job for the customer, then we're doing a good job for TBF. But yeah. that is intenseness can be taken as really tough sometimes. Nothing more than just trying to do a good job. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You know, since you joined TVF, it became employee owned in, in 2010. And I think we've had an, a nice run as an employee owned company. I'm curious what employee ownership has meant to you. I had no idea what a, an ESOP was when the whole thing came about. And um, that very first paycheck or our first share price of whatever under a dollar. Yes. I probably wasn't so impressed. And I said, come on, what's going on here? This is, and, you know, luckily we didn't have to pay into it. But since then, to get what we're at now is unreal that I can leave with a nice little paycheck for doing nothing more than my job. It's pretty cool. It's very cool. You, you never think that you could earn this kind of money just from doing your job. And I talk about it all the time. I had a friend who's, they were trying to get an ESOP at their place. I said, dude, you got to do it. It's fantastic. And they were asking, that company was asking the employees to buy into it. Uh, and you did not ask us to do that, which is a fantastic way to start it. You know, I know that whatever I do affects more than just me and my customer. It affects all of us. So I'm scared to death. In some of the markets that I'm in, I don't want to make the decision that, you know, let's get lawyers involved and this and that. You know, it didn't produce what it was supposed to do. Scares me to death because I don't want to be the, the guy that, you know, could take a tremendous amount of, of wealth from TBF. That's mm -hmm. it. So that's that's one reason I you know try to be very thorough in what I do. I'm slower, but I like to think I'm pretty thorough. That's awesome. What advice would you have uh, for your fellow employee owners and uh, other listeners? Yeah, as far as salespeople, be yourself. I mean, on that one right there, that's the number one thing. You can't. You can't be, you know, what you aren't. I mean, you know, one of the girls that sits across from me, she can smile over the phone. I can't do that. 
So I use my technical experience, what I have. So just be yourself, you know, do stuff on time, do the best you can, have some fun while you're doing it. There's nothing wrong with that. And um, that's it. But be yourself. Fantastic. I think it's great advice. Jim, this has been an awesome conversation. So thanks, Jim. And um, we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. In each episode of Empowered Owners, after we have a chat with our featured guest, uh, we're going to bring them back for a quick and hopefully fun segment. Today, Jim and I are going to draft our top five best sports to be a professional athlete in. Our goal, Jim, and I know you're competitive, is to have the best top five list. So you want to have a better list than me, which I don't know. Uh, we'll see who, who comes out on top. Um, so, but I know knowing how competitive you are, I spent a fair amount of time preparing for this. So, um, Jim, what do you say? You ready to get started? Sure. Ready? Okay. You get the first pick. Number one's a golfer. You know, you play in good weather. You can do it till you're 65. They got tournaments for, for the older folks. I think by far number one's a golfer. I had a feeling you were going to say golf, Jim, because I know you, you love to play golf. So I'm going to go, my first pick is baseball. I think baseball of all the kind of professional team sports uh, is the most casual and fun. Whenever you look in the dugout, baseball players are always having like a lot of fun. Um, and really, if you're a pitcher, you only work one every four days. And even if you're on the, in the rest of the roster, you're mostly standing around waiting for the ball to come to you. So, yeah. but you know, it's a skill too. It's like, a, it requires a lot of skill. And let's be honest, they can make a lot of money. So um, I think being a baseball player is pretty good. So that's my top choice. I agree. All right. So those are off the board. What's your second choice? Uh, I'm going to have to go uh, NBA player. Mm. I think, uh, again, you play in great weather. You make a good bit of money. Even if you're sitting on the bench, you're doing pretty damn good. And you're making a tremendous amount of money. If you stay healthy, it's a fun sport. People know you. You're only one of five or one of 10 on the field, uh, on the court at any given time. So you get a lot of exposure and the money's pretty good. Good choice. I'm mad because that was my second choice and I didn't think you were going to pick that. So, um, I'm going to have to jump down to my, down my list a little bit. Um, so this might be a little off the wall, but I'm going to go with esports. So professional video game. <laughs> Does that count, Jim? Can I count that as a sport? It sure, it, of course it counts. Okay. I just think, you know, indoors, get to play with all the most fun current games. Um, yeah. N no risk of injury other than, you know, your thumbs, I guess. Um, so that's my second choice. Well, going on along that route, a professional poker player. <laughs> okay. Great Is that your third choice? That's going to be my third choice. Nice. Great weather. I would think most of those people might not need the money. So you're, you're just having fun. Um, no risk of injury. If, and if you're good, you can win a few dollars. Good call. Yep. Poker slash gambler. I think that that counts as a, as, as a sport for sure in this context. Okay. My third choice. Um, this is going to sound weird, but I'm going to go with professional cricket. It's not big in the U S but it's one of the biggest sports in the world. It's kind of like baseball, really. It's the it's the India and like other countries version of baseball. So it's similar in terms of low injury risk and stuff. From what I know, I don't know much about cricket, but um, 
seems like it'd be fun from what I've seen. So I'm going to go with cricket. Fair enough. All right. Well, along those lines, I'm going to say professional water skier. That's, <laughs> okay. that's what I really wanted to be when I was younger. That was the very <laughs> really? first thing I ever wanted to do. Going ah. to see ski shows and those things. I said, that would be cool. And I can, I can water ski and I can barefoot and those things. That's a good, I did not have that on my list and I, and I didn't have poker either. So those are two good choices I didn't have. My next one is going to be, we're, we're both really doing a good job doing the, the easy, low, low injury risk sports and stuff. I'm going to go with, um, billiards, um, probably not great money, but yeah, I, I just think billiards would be a lot of fun, uh, to be a professional in. That would be a good one. I agree. But. After that, let's say tennis. Mm. Um, it's a grueling sport, but you get to travel all over the world. Uh, you make good money. You get your name out there if you're one of the top. Um, you got to work to get to number one. There's nothing wrong with having to work. And once you get there, you're pretty well respected. So mm. I'll, I'll go with tennis as my next one. Good choice. Yep. All right. My last choice, bowling. Um, another one, just easy low injury risk, a lot of fun, social. We both picked a lot of social sports, which I think make a lot of sense. Um, I like our lists. Um, so your picks were golf, basketball, poker, water sports, tennis, and mine were baseball, esports, cricket, billiards, and bowling. I'm going to give us credit, Jim. Neither of us picked football, MMA, boxing, auto racing, rugby, or hockey. I have a feeling we both sensed that those would have too much risk for uh, our tolerance. Like, all right, that was a lot of fun. Hopefully we hear from our listeners on who they think won the draft. But Jim, this really has been so much fun. Thank you for joining us on uh, this episode of Empowered Owners. And hopefully you had fun with this too. And uh, look forward to seeing you again next time. I did. Thank you for asking me. Coming up next, Empowered Ventures Chief of Staff, Emily Bope, will join me for a quick debrief of my discussion with Jim. Hi, Emily. How are you today? Hey, doing great. And I loved listening in to your talk with Jim. What a fascinating individual. That's great. What did you think about Jim? Okay, so the whole time I was thinking, if Jim were an author, the title of his book would be More Than Sales. <laughs> Good. I Seriously. Like and think about all of the chapters there would be. There would be technical expertise and how to be an awesome salesperson because you actually know your industry and you can talk both sides, the customer and in your case, the mill, you know, more than sales. And then there would be another chapter on relationships, relationships with all of that trust based you know, relational um, problem solving. Well, maybe that would be another chapter is on problem solving. So it'd be relationships, it'd be problem solving, it'd be technical expertise. And finally, there'd be a chapter on uh, interpersonal relationships at your company and how you, you know, influence others, how you help everyone. I mean, seriously, he should write a book called More Than Sales. Seriously, that is a really good idea. Um, it's so true. It's so true. Anything else stood out to you about the conversation? No, so glad that we were able to get to know him a little bit. And who knew? Jim was a water skier. Super yeah. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Super cool. Um, so uh, what else is going on inside Empowered Ventures lately that we might want to highlight for the audience? One of our businesses, I'm glad you thought to ask, one of our businesses had a visit from one of their congressmen. And I don't know the whole story on that, but I think you do. So I think everybody needs to know what happened at First Star. Can you fill us in? 
Yeah. So first star, um, our, our precision machine shop in, um, Brunswick, Ohio, uh, Dave Tinney, uh, founder and still president of the company. Um, he has always been really good about staying connected with the local city and the governance function from the town and the area that he's in. Um, and they moved to Brunswick a few years ago. And ever since then, he got very plugged into that, that local city government. And they're basically always brought in. They have had multiple visits from lots of different representatives. And uh, anytime the city is wanting to uh, coordinate visits of with politicians and kind of to highlight interesting things going on in businesses in that city, um, specifically innovation or automation or, you know, jobs like first stars like on the list. And, um, they always give Dave a call and, um, they've had numerous people visit. And I just think it's so awesome because now there's an added element for first star of talking about employee ownership. They've done this for a long time, but, um, now when the Congressman Max Miller recently joins or someone like him in the future, they get to hear the story, you know, of how first star became employee owned as well and who empowered ventures is. So personally, I'm super grateful that Dave does this because, it's not something all employee-owned companies do a great job of. There's an co organization called ESCA that tries to organize things like this and does a great job. But um, it's an opportunity. And in a way, I feel challenged in a good way by Dave um, to say, hey, you know, this is something that's important and um, it's an opportunity. And I'm just really glad First Star does it. For sure. So I saw a picture that Eska uh, published in their newsletter, and there were some of the folks that I've met there at First Star. So hats off to you, First Star employee owners and Dave, for leading the charge and putting First Star in the limelight as an example you know, to others. That's an inspiration to the businesses and, and the people who are setting policy that influences business there. And now we have the employee ownership piece um, you know, weighing in as well. It's just it's super cool. So Something to celebrate there with First Star. Yes, definitely. Love it. And yes, huge thanks to Dave. Um, outside of that, you know, I think what's going on in, at Empire Adventures, we finished our fiscal year, well, March 31. Um, and we finished the year. It was a good year, a really good year. Our three businesses all did well. Um, and it's an exciting time because as an employee-owned company, it's it's when we um, wrap up the year and our, our share price, um, gets figured out. Um, so every year our, we have a new share price that gets issued and announced to all the team, uh, the employee owners. And that share price is a big deal because it really drives the value, um, of their accounts. And, um, it makes the employee ownership real for everybody, the share price ultimately, and, and the sh allocations of shares that go into their accounts. So, I know everyone's really excited to hear once that once that share price is is um, figured out and announced. Um, so that's where we're at is just as an org is kind of excitedly waiting for the year end stuff to get uh, finished and that that share price to get uh, announced. And um, I'm just looking forward to it. So that's kind of what's what's going on uh, behind the scenes a little bit at EV these days. Awesome. And I'm glad you brought that up. And I just am thinking about some of the folks out there who maybe have never heard the phrase fiscal year. Mm, so yeah. if you happen to be one of our EVers <laughs> and you've never heard the term fiscal year, don't worry. There's probably lots of us that have never heard the term fiscal year. All that means is other, rather than the calendar year that goes January 1st to January 1st or the school year that goes, you know, sometime in August to sometime in May, a fiscal year is a business term. Uh, for the financial, like when the financial year starts counting, 
So we start counting in April 1st is the beginning of our financial year. In other words, we pay attention to what happened financially in this business. It's sort of the, the new year for the business. So April 1st and then to the next April 1st. We, we finish out on March 31st. But yeah, now we're in the season of valuation and uh, how much are those shares going to be worth? And we'll be revealing that in July. So everybody stay tuned for the big share price reveal date. But yep, uh, behind the scenes, there's a ton of work. People would probably be flabbergasted if they really knew how much work goes into uh, valuing, you know, putting a price tag mm -hmm. on our collective business, our family of businesses. And that's how yep. then they come up with the share <laughs> that every employee owner, you know, would mm. get of that. Uh, that's the season that we're in. It takes weeks and weeks. Um, so that's what we're busy doing. Yeah. Yeah. And great color on fiscal and yeah. Um, all good stuff. So, uh, lots of great stuff happening at empowered ventures. Thank you for joining Emily for a quick breakdown of my discussion with Jim and highlighting some of the things going on at EV and look forward to seeing you again next time too. For sure. And can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Employee owners who are listening, I need you. I need your <laughs> input. I am going to make sure that you have my email, emily at empowered.ventures. Again, emily at empowered.ventures. Anything that you're curious about, anything you want to hear about, somebody who you'd like to hear interviewed, I want to know what you want to hear about on this podcast. And if you don't have an email and you can't send it to me at emily at empowered.ventures, I'm going to get a box set up so that you can write it down on a piece of paper, on a napkin, on any little scrap of anything, stick it in the box, and someone at your organization will make sure that I get it. So little plug for Emily Bope here at Empowered Ventures. We need your input, hungry for your input, excited for your input. What do you want to hear about? Who do you want to hear interviewed? Let me know. Fantastic. Thank you for mentioning that. And yes, please reach out to Emily and let us know any thoughts you have, suggestions, et cetera. Thank you, Emily. Sure thing. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Well, that wraps up this episode of Empowered Owners. I'd like to thank Jim Prestopino and Emily Bope for joining me and TVF's Connie Rentschler and Bob Burns for suggesting topics for my discussion with Jim. Remember, we want to hear from you. Please give us feedback suggest guests and topics for future episodes, and tell us how we can keep improving the show. To reach us, send us an email at emily at empowered.ventures. That's emily at empowered.ventures. Last but not least, a big thank you to our production team at Share Your Genius. Be sure to join us next time on Empowered Owners, as we explore the lives and stories of the amazing employee owners of Empowered Ventures. If you haven't already, follow our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Thank you for tuning in.